Would you please open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10? I will be all over this morning, but mainly in Hebrews. So Hebrews chapter 10. Those of you who are married, did you go through premarital counseling? I would assume that most of you went through some version of premarital counseling. What does premarital counseling accomplish? Does it fix the problems that we will face in our marriage? If so, Maggie and I signed up for the wrong premarital counselor. But I do hope that it does something. Um, at least the multiple weeks that I meet with couples that are being married, I hope that it serves them in a number of ways. I think the primary way premarital counseling helps couples is to establish really clear expectations. It lays out what you're signing up for. Hopefully, I, I really hope that it teaches you something about what marriage is, what the Bible says that marriage is, includes you into some of the challenges that you will face as a married couple, and then provides some tools to face those challenges in a God-honoring way. Why do I share this story? We're not talking about marriage this morning. We're talking about membership. I believe that our membership covenant in a local church is similar to premarital counseling. It teaches us what membership in the local church is. It establishes some clear expectations and it hopefully provides a way for us to meet the challenges that face us as believers seeking to be faithful to Jesus in this fallen world. Last week we considered what local church membership is. By way of review, Matthew teaches us that the local church has been given the authority of the keys of the kingdom of heaven. That means that we have been authorized to make a declaration on earth of what is true in heaven. We mark off people who have believed the gospel of Jesus Christ through baptism and bringing them into the church through local church membership. The keys to the kingdom also authorize us to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel. Hopefully, um, seeing many people come to saving faith in the gospel, as well as teaching those who have believed the gospel to observe all that Christ has commanded. We recognize, in short, those who have believed the gospel, and then we help others to grow in the gospel. Local church membership is the outworking of the mission of the church. It's mission critical. But how do we practically advance the gospel and help others to grow in the gospel? Our membership covenant spells out our common commitment to do that. It makes very tangible the ways that we will help one another grow. It establishes a number of expectations for gospel ministry within the local church, all designed 
to help us face the challenges of following Jesus in this world. And so over the next four weeks, we're not going to talk about membership per se, but the membership covenant. What are the expectations of membership within the local church? Four commitments that we make to one another to advance the gospel. This week, I'll be talking about the expectation, the commitment of our corporate gathering on Sunday morning, which is what we're doing right now in this place. And I'll be making the argument that this is a priority for us. If you're going to make progress as a disciple of Jesus Christ, I think most of you would agree that there need to be certain spiritual disciplines that are at place in your life. Would you agree with that? So this is the question I want to begin with. Of all of the spiritual disciplines in your life that are necessary for you to make progress as a disciple of Jesus, which one is the most important? Which one is the most important to you? We believe that the corporate gathering on Sunday morning, what we're doing right now, ought to be the highest priority, the most important spiritual discipline within your week. Isn't that a wild statement? That's not the way that most of us were brought up in the faith. As important as your quiet time is, as important as your community group is, or the Sunday school class that you attend, or the mentoring relationship that you have. We are so audacious to say that we think that corporate worship is the priority among all of those. Not to be pitted against those other things, but a priority. Why do I say that? You may be thinking, that's very convenient for you to say that, Pastor. The one who presides over said corporate worship gathering? Am I simply trying to make my thing your thing? Or does the Bible actually establish the corporate gathering as a priority? To answer that question, I want to draw your attention to the book of Hebrews. If you're familiar with Hebrews, you know that the main theme of the book is the supremacy of Christ. Christ is greater than all things. He's greater than angels. He is greater than Moses. Greater than the priesthood of Aaron. Greater in all ways. And through His blood, He has brought about a greater covenant than the new covenant. He is supreme. That's the theme of the book of Hebrews. But what is the aim? To what end does the author enumerate the excellencies of Jesus Christ? What is he trying to get done in the church that he is preaching this sermon to? He wants them to endure. Look at chapter 10, verse 36. One of dozens of verses I could point your attention to. He says, For you have need of endurance. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. These Christians are facing many challenges in living out their faith in the world. Can you relate to them? 
Challenges that were so real that they were tempted to throw in the towel. Everything in Hebrews is seeking to persuade his original readers, don't give up. Endure in the faith. More specifically, endure in worshiping God. Can you think of anything more important than that? The worship of God is the core. It's the reason we were created. It was the reason we were redeemed. We were meant to come into a relationship with God where we worship Him, where we glorify God and enjoy Him forever. This is the aim of the book of Hebrews, that the people would keep on worshiping God in all of their lives. To ground this point that I'm making, I want you to notice a parallel in chapter 4 and in chapter 10. You may leave your finger in chapter 10 and turn over to chapter 4, to those verses I read earlier in verses 14 to 16. In chapter 4, verse 14, he says, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession." That's the call to endurance. Then he says in verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. In the book of Hebrews, this is a call to worship. To prayer, like we did earlier, but really worship in all of life. So a call to enduring in worship. 4, 14 to 16. Notice the same thing in chapter 10, verses 22 and following but in reverse order in verse 22 he says let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith that is a call to worship in all of life and in verse 23 let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering the call to endurance so what is the aim of the book For the people who read this letter to keep on worshiping God in all of their lives to the very end. Does that sound like a worthy goal? How will that goal be achieved? He puts forward a plan in verses 24 and following. He says, let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works. As you keep reading in Hebrews 10, 11, 12, and 13, you see that this is what worship is. Love and good works. Worship is not simply something we do on Sunday. It's something we do every day. But notice the way we stir up one another toward love and good works. The way we stir up one another to a life of worship in verse 25, by not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some. Some had gotten in the habit of neglecting the assembly. But encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. You see, we are called to worship 
God in all of life, but this worship gathering that we're in right now is one of the greatest helps that we can get for doing the very thing that we were created and saved to do. We're commanded to gather together corporately for worship, but it is not simply a command. It is God's good grace to us that He calls us to do it because it is the way that we will fulfill the purpose for which He has redeemed us. So here's my sermon in a sentence. To worship well every day, we need to gather this day. To worship well every day of the week. For every day of our lives, all the way to the end of our lives. To do that, we need to prioritize the Lord's Day and specifically the gathering together of the church in this place on the Lord's Day. We're commanded to do it, but again, it's more than a bare command. Hebrews gives us good reasons for prioritizing the gathering. I'm going to draw your attention to some of those, but not just from Hebrews. I'm going to be drawing on Paul as well. I want to highlight, of all that I could mention, I want to highlight two reasons or two ways that gathering as a church helps us to worship God. And then at the end, I'll give some practical suggestions for how that might affect the way you think about gathering here. The first reason gathering helps us to worship God, or the first way is that gathering reminds us we're citizens of heaven. To make this point, I'm going to take a pretty long excursus on the word church. Then we'll come back to Hebrews. The word church in the Greek, most of you know it, it's ekklesia. It shows up 114 times in the New Testament. The scholar Peter O'Brien has made a very compelling argument that many other scholars draw on, that in the New Testament, the word ekklesia always means gathering. Grasp that if you're going to get my argument this morning. It always means gathering or assembly. Most of the time, 87 of the 114 times, the word refers to the gathering of a local church like what we're doing here. It's really interesting. You may miss it through a casual reading of Paul's letters. But when Paul, for example, speaks of the church at Thessalonica or the church at Corinth, notice he doesn't call those churches a church or part of the church. Instead, he says to the church at Thessalonica, to the church at Corinth. I would say to the church at 1825. North Woodlawn, who has been set apart as the assembly of the redeemed. Sometimes the word church does refer to all believers, not simply restricted to a local gathering like we're in right now. For example, 
In Colossians and Ephesians, we see this reference regularly. Colossians 1, verses 17 to 18 illustrates the point. We read, Christ is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. It's this cosmic picture. And He is the head of the body, the church. This is certainly referring to a larger group of people than the church at Colossae. Some say that here Paul is referencing what we often call the universal church, which is scattered throughout all time and all space. But if that's the case, then O'Brien's thesis is wrong. How can the church be a scattering and a gathering at the same time? It throws into question the meaning of the word. But O'Brien goes on to argue that in this space, he is referring not to the scattering of believers across time and space, but to the heavenly gathering of the people of God around the risen Christ. Think, for example, of Colossians 3, verse 1. If you have been raised with Him, means we're there, raised with Him, then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is where Hebrews gets very explicit and helpful for us in chapter 12, verse 22. He says this, Notice the tense of the verbs. But you have come to Mount Zion, verse 22, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly, or the church, of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all things, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. You've come to all of these things. So in chapter 10, verse 22, he calls believers to draw near to God, but here he says, you already have drawn near to God. In chapter 10, verse 25, he commands them to not neglect assembling together. Here he says they already are assembled in heaven around the risen Christ. This is the way the New Testament thinks about church. There is a heavenly gathering for all who believe or ever have believed. They are in reality gathered around the risen Christ. And yet, we have local churches that are called the church that also assemble together. Not as a church, not as a part of the church, but as a manifestation of the church. Doesn't that blow your mind? That which is true in heaven and for eternity is made known when we gather on Sunday morning in time and in space. 
How might this encourage someone like you or me or those that the author of Hebrews was writing to to endure in the faith? Life on this earth is very difficult. Difficult to maintain faithfulness to Jesus. Now let me give a caveat there. If you are actually bearing witness to Christ in the world, you will face opposition. People will think you are weird. People will think you are mean. Life on this earth as witnessing to Christ will be difficult. This assembly reminds you that you don't belong to this earth. As Kurt said two weeks ago, this is not your home. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. You have been raised with Christ. That is true. And this gathering is a picture of that reality. You are a citizen of the kingdom of heaven if you belong to Christ. And that should encourage you to continue on in this journey we share. You stand side by side. Think about this. Some of you may have families where your family are not believers. I pray for them on Thursdays. Some of you work in environments surrounded by people who are not believers. And there are people who do not believe in this assembly as well. But by and large, the people you stand to next to right now, they are citizens of the same kingdom to which you are on pilgrimage. This is a reminder that one day it will not be a mixed bunch. It will be the company of the redeemed surrounding the throne of our Savior. Our gathering on Sunday mornings is for citizens of the kingdom of heaven what the 4th of July is for citizens of the United States. It's here that we sing the anthem of heaven. It's here that we together stand up and pledge our allegiance to King Jesus. It is here that we gather around the table of the Lord's Supper, but also gather to be fed by God's Word. It is here that we should walk out saying, I am proud not to be an American. You may be proud to be that. But I am proud to be a citizen of the kingdom of heaven. And that's the first way that gathering helps us to endure in worshiping God. The second is this. Gathering builds up our endurance. It's going to take me a while to get to this point, but I think my little detour is important. If somebody asked you why you go to church on Sunday, what would you say? What do you say? The Sunday school answer is we go to worship God. And that is true. But is that the specific reason Christ has called the church to gather on Sunday morning? 
Let me ask you another question. What actually is worship? Is it singing praise songs to God? That's the way that we normally talk about worship. If we say a church has good worship, what do we mean? They have good preaching? They have good prayers? Normally it means they have good music. We have, I don't know how, but somehow come to divide the services into two parts. The worship time, the preaching time. The singing time and the time for teaching. The time for adoration and the time for edification. But is that the way that the Bible talks about worship? And is that the way that the Bible talks about what we do on Sunday mornings? There is some truth to this way of thinking, but there is a very subtle error to this way of thinking as well that I think is important to iron out. Let me try to explain it. In the Old Testament, which the author of Hebrews is drawing on heavily, the people of God gathered three times a year at Jerusalem to worship God. There, the priests would serve God in the temple, mainly through offering sacrifices. What happens in the New Testament is really interesting. The authors of the New Testament they hijack all of that language about the sacrificial system and worship in the Old Testament. And they apply it to Jesus and to the ordinary lives of Christians. Think about Hebrews, where clearly Jesus is the new and the better priest than Aaron. And he offers a better sacrifice, his own life on the cross for our sins. We're even told that Jesus is the new temple, the place where people meet God. But it's not only in Jesus that the sacrificial imagery of the Old Testament is applied. Paul applies it to his own ministry. His gospel ministry, he frames in priestly terms. He'll even go on to talk about his ministry as being poured out as a drink offering on the altar of God. But he goes on to then use that same language to describe our life as disciples of Jesus Christ. He says, offer your members as righteous. Or the very famous verse in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. There's that language holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. That's the big reveal in the New Testament. Our worship is now centered on and made possible by Christ, not the sacrificial system. And the other thing is that all of our lives are meant to be offered up in worship to God, not simply our gathering on Sunday mornings and certainly not limited to the songs that we sing. All of those things are worship. All of life is worship. We draw near to God in every area and at every time in our life if we are living as we are called to live. Later in Hebrews 13, verses 14 to 16, we see this very plainly. He says, Here we have no lasting city. So there's that 
pilgrimage imagery again. But we seek the city that is to come. Through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What is the sacrifice of praise? That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. You see, he's applying sacrificial imagery to our everyday lives as Christians as worship to God. The fruit of lips that acknowledge his name is one of the ways we give praise to God. What's he talking about there? In the context, I think it's quite plain, he's talking about evangelism. Is that the way that you normally read that verse? He's talking about evangelism. When we bear witness for Christ in the world with our words, we are offering a sacrifice of praise to God. He goes on then to call us to do good and to share what we have. This too is an act of worship. What is it? It's taking care of the needs of others in the body of Christ. Worship is all of life. We have to get that. So now let me ask, what is the role then of our corporate worship gathering? When Paul speaks of the corporate gathering, he doesn't even use the language of worship. Although I think it's fair to say, as I've already said, that we are worshiping God. But instead, when he speaks of the corporate gathering, he often uses the language of building up. That of edification. I could quote a number of examples. Let me simply give one in 1 Corinthians 14, 26. He says, when you come together, let all things be done for building up. So there's not a part of the service that's for worship and the other part that's for building up. All things are done for building up. Teaching and preaching are clearly for building up, but so is singing. Colossians 3, 16 says, Let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom, singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. Notice the progression. What is the goal of singing? It is to teach and to admonish one another. It has a horizontal dimension. When you sing, are you thinking this is just me and Jesus? That's not the, old, the New Testament's picture of it. We are singing to one another. But notice how he ends. With thankfulness in our heart to God. So there's adoration and edification. There is a vertical dimension and a horizontal di- dimension. And there is no division of labor. Both are happening at the same time in every element of the corporate worship gathering. When many people think about the worship service and the singing time, they think this is praising God. Many people view that time as 
kind of a time to extend their own personal devotions, but with just a few hundred other people all around. I hope you are worshiping Jesus as you're singing. I hope you're worshiping Jesus as you're listening to this sermon. But what I want you to do today is to change your perspective to see that you are also ministering to one another through your participation within this service. We edify one another so that we can glorify God. That's what Hebrews 10, 24 to 25 is saying. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So they're drawing near to God. It's the goal of all of life. But the way to do that is by meeting together to build one another up, to stir one another up. It's about building endurance so we can praise God with lips and with lives all the way to the end of our life. We have great need of endurance. Great need of finishing well. How will we finish well? Hebrews 12 tells us we fix our eyes on Jesus, the one who finished very well. But it's more dynamic than that. How do we fix our eyes on Jesus? We need other people to help us do that. We need the Word of God, which points us to Jesus. And then we as a church minister that Word one to another. We fix our eyes on Jesus, but we need each other to fix our eyes on Jesus. We do that one to another every day of our lives. We do that one-on-one. -on -one. We do that in the smaller groups that we gather in. But I would say that there is no substitute for the corporate gathering and ministering the Word of Christ one to another. Why? Why do I say that? I'm sometimes asked that question. Come on. Do you really think that this is the most important thing of all of the things I do to cultivate my relationship with the Lord? Why do you say that? I think there's biblical warrant for it. This is the short answer. God has told us how we will grow as Christians in His Word. And of all of the ways that He has instructed us to engage so that we can grow, there is the highest concentration of those means of grace in the corporate worship gathering on a Sunday morning. There is simply no other place in our week and in our life where we can get so much done all at one time and all in one place. God calls us to read the Word publicly. Did you know that our public assembly really matters to God because He wants the church to be a display of His manifold wisdom to all of the world? Where else do we read the Word of God publicly but in this gathering? We are called to pray publicly for people in authority in the world. Where else do we do that but in this public assembly. We are called to sing to one another as we have pointed out. Where do we do that? We do that here. 
We are called to hear the word read publicly, preached publicly. We do that here. Where else do we observe the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we are commanded to do? We do that here. We need one another in all kinds of ways in our lives if we are going to endure in worshiping God all the way to the end. I can't imagine my life as a faithful follower of Jesus without my community group, without my mentor, Wes, without the many people that teach me the Word of God. I can't imagine doing my life without my personal time in the Word and in prayer each morning. I can't imagine persevering to the end without the encouragement of my wife. But as important as all of those things are, there is no substitute for the corporate gathering of God's people. It's here that we are reminded visually that we are citizens of another country. It is here that we obey all of the commands Christ has given to His church regarding our worship. To worship God well every day. We must prioritize gathering this day. That's my argument. Now please allow me to give a few practical applications. Assuming I've convinced you that this should be a priority, how might you practically prioritize corporate worship? I have two main applications and a number of suggestions for how you can apply them. First, make gathering a priority by planning to gather. I read something this week that stood out to me. Rest requires work. If you're going to take time off, you have to prepare for it. The same is true for our weekly gatherings. If you're going to prioritize it, you have to plan for it. You have to make plans to be here, but also to be ready to glorify God and edify others in the church. So this may involve something as simple as planning to get to bed on time or helping your kids to get to bed on time so that you can be fully awake when you arrive. If you're not able to do that, there's always coffee in the courtyard. Planning may also involve thinking about your travel schedule and your sports schedule. I don't want to be too prescriptive here, but I'm going to invite you to do the hard work of asking whether your calendar is in line with God's priorities. It's easy to become legalistic on this, but I believe something is true. Your pocketbook and your calendar probably say more about you in terms of what you value than anything else. Plan thirdly to attend both the 9 o'clock 
and the 1045 hour, if you are physically able. Ideally, you can come to both hours, you worship in one, you serve or take a class and learn in the other. Sunday is the Lord's Day. What better day than to concentrate on worship and learning and serving? But as much as I love learning, as much as I love serving, you can't do both of those on the same Sunday morning if you're going to prioritize worship. If you're only able to come to one service, I would encourage you to just come to worship. Plan together. Second, engage in the whole service. The whole service, from the prelude to the benediction, is carefully and prayerfully designed to point you to Christ so that you can endure to the end. Also, if you didn't know it, it all holds together. The lyrics fit with the sermon. There's a structure to the service. So if you miss the first part of that, you may not actually get where we're going in the service. So participate in the whole service. That means singing, even if that's not your thing. That means listening as the word is being read, as it's being preached. That means making the prayers that are offered on this platform your prayers, our prayers. That may mean turning your phone off during that time. If that is the gathering is a priority. It also means that you might want to be on time for the service, if at all possible. I don't want to be legalistic. I don't intend to be. But I do want to be obedient to what God has commanded, and I think these things are very clear in Scripture that we are to prioritize worship. These are simply suggestions for how you may do that well. Did you know that there are 168 hours in the week? We're simply being called to give an hour and a half of all of those hours to devoted attention to the corporate gathering. And it's for our good. And it's for the good of the people sitting next to you. And it is for the glory of God. Do you want to worship well? all the way to the end every day of your life then we must prioritize this day let us pray oh what grace we have received that we could draw near to you God because Christ has come near to us. What a privilege we have to have access to the God of the universe by the grace of the Gospel. Help us to marvel in that, but help us to also desire to want to help each other make progress in our worship of You. I pray that we would submit ourselves to your word knowing that you are a good God 
who wants to give good things to your children. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.